Acts 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So last time we focused on the first 11 verses. In the first part of this chapter, we are reminded that Paul prays for and desires that God would save Israel of the flesh. He wants to see the descendants of Jacob saved. Paul bears witness that the descendants of Jacob have a zeal for God, but that this zeal is not according to knowledge. And so the absence of knowledge is the problem. The zeal without knowledge not a profitable thing, it's a destructive thing. Zeal with knowledge is a very profitable thing. Now, in verse 3, Israel, after the flesh, was ignorant of God's righteousness in the law. Why ignorant? It's not that God failed to deliver the word to them. It's that they twisted the word to their own destruction. They were ignorant of God's righteousness in the law because they made the law keepable and they altered it. I talked last time about many examples of how Jesus had to correct the teaching of the law that was given by the Jews of his day. And so he shows them how the law is something that they were breakers of. 
Verse 3, Israel after the flesh sought to establish their own righteousness by redefining the law to be keepable. It doesn't work. The one who wrote the law tends to understand what he means. And so, since he had given the law, he understood how they had broken it. And he also knew that he had given them clear, objective revelation. And that they were breakers of that law. Israel after the flesh did not submit to the righteousness of God as the lawgiver and judge. They would not condemn themselves. Instead, they sought to justify themselves. They failed to see that Christ is the goal of the law, the end of the law, for the imputed righteousness that goes to everyone who believes. And so they sought to have a law that they could keep, and to have a righteousness by this law that they could keep, instead of the righteousness by faith. Now, Paul explains this further by saying, for Moses writes, verse 5, for Moses writes that the righteousness of the law speaks in this way, that the doer of the law has life. So then we have this, verse 6, this discussion that faith does not ask who will ascend to impossible heights like Christ already has. Verse 7 teaches us that faith does not say who will descend to impossible depths. Christ already has. Verse 8, faith does not, faith says we already have the word. The word is in our mouths. The word is in our hearts. And Paul says that this is the word of faith which we proclaim. Verse 9, the word is that very confession, that profession that is in your mouth. It's the profession of the Lord Jesus. The word that you believe in your heart is that God raised him from the dead. And if you believe that, then you will be saved. If you confess that, you will be saved. And we talked about how there's the salvation in the narrow sense, where there's the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, so that we are counted as innocent by his death and righteous by his life, And there's the broader salvation, which includes the subduing of curse wherever it is found. Now, Paul uses the reference to the raising of Christ from the dead as a synecdoche. It's a verbal representation. It's a figure of speech. He uses this to refer to the gospel. Now, elsewhere, he explains the gospel more fully. So, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11 I think is given to us as an inspired summary. So you think about, we have the Lord's Prayer to teach us how to pray. We have the Ten Commandments to give us a good summary of the law. And we have 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, to give us a good summary of the gospel. These are sound patterns of words that help us to organize in our minds the basic principles of the mind of God. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that there's an apostolic deposit that's given. It should sound like the beginning of Romans to you. We're told that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so we're supposed to understand, okay, what is the meaning of Christ's death for our sins? How do the scriptures explain that? Christ was buried. He's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What does his resurrection mean? It's explained by the scriptures. We're told that Christ, after he died, after he's raised... He appeared to the apostles, first to Peter, then to the twelve, then to five hundred, then to James, then all the apostles, and then as to one born out of due time, last of all, he appeared to Paul. And so there's this apostolic witness of his life and resurrection and of his teaching. And Jesus taught Paul as one born out of due time. He explains that grace is not meaningless to him, but he acts so as to show the meaningfulness of grace by laboring harder than any of the other apostles. He works out of gratitude. 
And he says, it's not I who do the work with the grace. It's the grace of God who works with me. And so this summary, we have this idea that there is a sanctification that comes and that there's gratitude that flows out of the knowledge of the gospel. And this is the same message that he's explaining for us here in Romans 10 as he talks about the proclamation of the truth throughout the world and the sending of people. Can you say with Paul, when you look at your own sins, are you able to say that you are the chief of sinners? When you look at your own sin, do you see your own sinfulness as worse than those around you? Now here's the reality. Okay? Some preachers will tell you every sin is the same. That's a lie. It's not. Not every sin is the same. Some of your sins are worse than other sins that you've committed. Every one of them deserves hell. Some sins are worse than others. This is made clear because the Lord Jesus Christ talks about how there are degrees of punishment. The word clearly teaches that there's a differentiation of sins. Some things are said to be worse than others. Criminal penalties are given for the restraining of some evils. Some sins are worse than others. Doesn't that mean objectively there is somebody who's worse than everybody else? Yes. But you don't know them as well as you know you. I don't know you as well as I know me. And so maybe you have sinned more than me. But if I know more about your sins than I know about mine, what does that say about where I'm placing my attention? If you know more about somebody else's sins than you know about your own, and you do not understand your own sin very well. And I would suggest you are not as good as you think. When you consider the law of God and you pay attention to applying it in your own life, you will be able to say that I am the chief of sinners. Now, that should make the gospel very dear to you. Because as you have a deep understanding of your own failures, that balm ought to be of extraordinary value. Who will save me from my own self-destructive sin? Who will save me from the wrath of God? Who will save me from continuing in this road? And so we looked at the gospel and that grace ought not to have an effect that makes your life meaningless. It should make you work harder than the people around you. Because you know that you're the chief of sinners. And so you should toil not to get it, not to get justification, but because you have been justified, because you have been saved, because you are a recipient of grace. And so gratitude ought to flow from you like a river. proclamation goes out from our mouths and it subdues things around us. Verse 10, for with the heart the word is believed into righteousness. Right, there's the doctrine of justification. By faith alone. Apart from the works of the law. And with the mouth the word is confessed into salvation. Verse 11, here's the proof. For the scripture says, everyone believing on him will not be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord of all is rich into all who call upon him. For all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we have two quotes. One from Isaiah 28 and one from Joel 2. Isaiah 28 teaches us that belief is going to get us something. And Joel 2 talks about 
calling upon the name of the Lord as something that will bring something. So let's consider what Isaiah says. The Scripture says, everyone believing on Him will not be put to shame. Now the Hebrew in Isaiah 28 verse 16 actually says, whoever believes will not act hastily. What is the relationship of shame to hasty action? What's being discussed here is not the doctrine of justification. Paul has already taught us many times, very clearly, about the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the book of Romans. But now, he is showing us about the promise of sanctification in the gospel. Everyone believing on Christ will not be put to shame. That's his translation into Greek of what it says in Hebrew. What does it say in Hebrew? Whoever believes will not act hastily. So he's associating hasty action with shame. The idea is that actions out of faith, which are actions performing what the Word of God teaches, as opposed to hasty action, actions out of faith will not result in shame. In fact, they result in glorying. They result in overcoming. And you remember the thesis? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the salvation. It's the power of God. Salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we're back there. He's proving that. He's continuing to draw out his thesis. So actions that come out of faith don't result in shame. They result in a glorying in God. So what he's teaching us here, in part, is that if we act out of faith, it will bring us glory. It will bring you honor. It will bring you victory. It overcomes the flesh, the world, and the devil. Acting in faith is powerful. And it helps you to not be ashamed. It reinforces. It helps to build up your faith. And the idea is this isn't just true for the Jew, it's also true for the Greek. It's true for every nation. Now, verse 12 There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. We have this idea that He is rich. He gives blessing richly to all those who call upon Him. And calling upon God, we talked about last week, is a type of confessing. It's a type of professing the truth. When you pray, your prayer itself is a profession. And so, when there's the public prayer, when you say amen, you are joining in the prayer, and you're making public confession of that prayer. And so that praying is a confession, and it is powerful to overcome curse. Jesus is the Lord of all, and He's rich unto all who call upon Him. And then we have a proof text from Joel. For all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, the context, when you look at Joel 2, verse 32, the verses around it, it talks about Pentecost. It talks about the Spirit of God being poured out. And that's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and there's gifting given, and there's this great power given to the church. And then afterwards, it talks about the judgment coming upon Jerusalem, the destruction in 70 A.D., What he's saying, he's talking about curse there in Joel 2. He's talking about curse. The Word of God is powerful. Prayer is powerful for the receiving of blessing and the pulling away of curse. The proclamation of the Word is powerful for the receiving of blessing and the pulling away of curse. And when you do that in ordinary life, when we do it in the public assembly, these things are powerful. To pull away curse and to give blessing. 
And afterwards, we see Paul talking about asking and seeking. When you hear asking and seeking, do you think of Jesus? And he's talking about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Him talking about you have not because you ask not. That's in James. We have this idea of Jesus talking about asking and the windows of heaven opening up. But we have received these things without asking and without seeking. How much more than asking and seeking? For all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we're talking about salvation in the broad sense. And so verse 14 How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now that word preacher, this word is common in the New Testament. And it's really not preacher it's proclaiming, preaching. So the, the translation of a preacher, I think this is actually the only time the word is translated this way in the New King James. Okay, so normally you would expect it to be translated like this. How shall they hear without preaching? How will they hear without preaching? Without proclaiming? So let's, let's back up. What is preaching supposed to bring about? How shall they call on him in whom they do not believe? The goal is to have prayer called down. The proclamation, the profession, the confession of the word of God and prayer as a type of that confession. And that is to fill the earth that the, that the world would even be a house of prayer. Right? We talk about that the church is, is a house of God, which points back to the temple, which was the house of God, which points back to the garden, which is the house of God. Okay, there's this connection, this idea that the world is to be filled with subduing work, this wilderness turned to garden, garden turned to city. whole new meaning for habitat for humanity. The Dominion Mandate was very concerned for that. And the problem is not that we have overpopulation, it's that we have underpopulation. You're just not having enough babies. And so what we need is more people, because people are knowers of God when they believe. And so what we need is for more people to know more about God so that the world will be a house of prayer. So that this earth as the temple of God, filled with the church, filled with the knowledge of God, would be filled with the sounds of the prayers of God's people. Now, there was a town in England, and there was a Presbyterian minister who went there in the 1600s. And when he got there, there were no families doing family worship, perhaps a few. Church attendance was sparse. And what he did is he went around and he preached. He catechized children. He encouraged families to organize family worship. He encouraged the singing of psalms. He preached without compromise from the pulpit. And across a period of years, the town was transformed so that at twilight, if you walked across the town, you could hear from house to house the sound of psalms coming forth from every home. Every house was engaged in family worship. And that little plot that was once a place of ignorance became a little spot of heaven on earth 
transformation that can occur in local ways, think about them accomplished on a global sphere. That will be accomplished. That is what Jesus Christ will do. He will bring about that sort of worldwide transformation, but in a greater way. And so that is the work that you are called into. And that is, imagine that many prayers. Imagine everyone you know is a person whom you could ask for prayer and have expectation that their prayer is powerful to pull down blessing from heaven. Do you think that there would be less curse around you and in your life with that happening? And so that is the desire to see prayer happening from believing hearts. But how are they to to believe if they haven't heard? Okay, so there seems to be a need for them to hear. And how will they hear if there is no proclamation? Who proclaims the gospel? People who are ashamed of the gospel? Are they the ones that loudly proclaim the truths of God? Or is it those who glory in the knowledge of God that proclaim the truths of God? And so Paul is showing us his initial goal, him stating he's not ashamed of the gospel and why. He wants us to not be ashamed of the gospel and for us to know why, so that we can be stable in it. Because you might not be ashamed today, but if you don't have a good answer, you might be ashamed tomorrow. And so having a deep knowledge is the way to have a stable glorying in the knowledge of God. How shall they hear without proclamation? So we see there's two types of confession. There's the proclamation of the gospel, and there's also prayer. And so Paul is trying to Develop people who will do both. Not just Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ is trying to develop people who will do both. In verse 15, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Who sins? The Lord Jesus Christ sins. And he gives two ways in which people can be sent. There's actually a third way. The third way is he comes and tells them. That doesn't happen anymore. If you think the Lord Jesus Christ has come to you personally and spoken to you about anything, please come and talk to me. Let's have a conversation. There are two ways to continue. One, he causes a man to be matured in the faith, makes him bear fruit to display qualification for office, causes the church to see that fruit, to acknowledge that fruit by nomination, by two or three witnesses, a period of testing to see if this is only apparent fruit or if there's something real about it. And after the period of testing, a vote to approve or disapprove, a laying on of hands as a symbol for giving authority, and that man is set apart for the preaching of the word. The second way is an emergent duty. If you were on a ship, it's about to sink and you're surrounded by unbelieving souls. Who is fit to preach? Anyone who does it. If you're in private, and someone says something that gives an opportunity, who is fit to preach? Anyone who does it. There are providential occurrences where you come into a place of duty. And so with the public setting apart of a person for an office, there is one way. And in ordinary life, it's everybody. 
whenever there's opportunity. The speaking of the truth from more basic to less basic at the appropriate time. And so learning how to do that well without always falling on your face, without always embarrassing yourself and embarrassing your Lord, without doing something that's foolish in the process, is a difficult process. And so you're going to fall on your face if you try. And when you fall on your face, you're going to be embarrassed. And when you're embarrassed, you're going to need something powerful to help you to not be ashamed, but to be able to glory in it and to get up and to do it again. So what you need is a deep knowledge of how awful the alternative is and how glorious and beautiful the fruit is. Every day when you go to work, do you get up and say, this job is delightful. There's nothing difficult here. There are no thorns or thistles. All the people are wonderful and helpful. They're always just making it so easy to work together. There's, I don't even have to ask people for things. People just walk over and hand me the thing. And I go, how did you know this is what I needed? Is that your experience at work? Then why do you go? What's the point? Is it because there's a reward? Do you get paid? Is there an enjoyment of progress as things get better? And so, also the alternative of being hungry seems to be something that spurs us on. The negatives of not doing it and the positives of doing it. And so, the wiser you are, the less you focus on just the pain of not doing it, and the more you focus on the reward. And that makes it so that you can continue to work. Think about this. If you're just avoiding pain, you're going to work just hard enough to not be ashamed and just hard enough to not get fired. If you are working for the reward, if you're working to grow, then you're going to accomplish things and look for more opportunity. Is that not true in kingdom life? There's blessing that comes in ordinary, everyday work for our daily bread, and there's blessing that comes for seeking to work and bring glory to the king. And we do that, those overlap, right? We, our work, our ordinary, everyday dominion work is glorious to the king. But there are spiritual rewards, and they are better than a paycheck. How shall they call on the one into whom they do not believe, and how shall they believe he whom they did not know, sorry, him who they did not hear, and how shall they hear without proclaiming, without preaching, and how shall they proclaim if they are not sent? There's a lot of harvest out there, and there are very few workers. There is a lot of harvest. Fields are full. And there are very few workers. If we think Jesus is to get us out of hell, we're right. But not only that. Jesus is also to transform us. And to make it so that earth becomes more like heaven. Jesus is to make it so that your life here is better. He makes your life here better by making it so that by believing the truth, your suffering is more tolerable and your joys are higher. And so the way you interpret every moment of life is changed by faith in Jesus Christ. And that makes it so that you can proclaim the truth that you can pray with faith so that you can wage spiritual war and see the darkness pushed back. It is worth the work of being fit to be sent. It is worth the work of being ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that is within you. It is worth the work. How will they hear? 
if no one proclaims? And how will they proclaim if they're not sent? And who can I send? Who can we send? Except for those who are matured and who are ready and are fit. Every man among you has a duty to be fit for the eldership. It doesn't mean every one of you will be an elder. It doesn't mean that every one of you should serve as an elder. But every one of you should be fit for the office. And so you should be familiar with 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there with me. This is what you're called to. Now, when I just spoke to you, if you're an honest man, your initial response in hearing about a bunch of duties falling on you is, I am weak and I am weary and I failed to do them. And you're about to hear a bunch of things that you should be. What I want you to remember is we just read a section of Romans that teaches us that faith is powerful to build you up. That God gives the faith, he grows the faith, and the word of God causes curse to be removed and blessing to be increased. And so I'm telling you, this is what Jesus Christ is transforming you into. It's going to happen, whether you want it or not, if you believe. And if you believe, you ought to want it. He'll make you want it. Gradually. He'll persuade you of more truths that make you want it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. It's a faithful word. If a man desires the office of overseer, the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. What is office? Office is about work. Good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, if you're the head of a house, rule it well, guard and garden your wife, nurture her. She is a prophecy of what the church will be if you were made an elder. Bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How you disciple them is a prophecy of what new converts who come under your discipleship will become. If you're not married, get married. If you're married, have babies. And if you have babies, baptize them. Now, that process we read as our call to worship, we read Deuteronomy 6. And it talks about how you govern your children, how you teach them all the time. And that's what life is supposed to look like And that's how you become not ashamed. Go back to Romans. That's how you have this ability to speak the word and to be joyful about it. Even in the face of opposition. The happy warrior. The ability to overcome. To not be brought low. But to overcome evil with good. Now, We think about all the negatives of speaking the gospel because we expect opposition because there is so much opposition. But there are few, a happy few, who hear the proclamation and they believe. And that few will become more and more as the word goes forth. As there is success, there will be more success. 
And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. There are people who will hate you for proclaiming the gospel, but the ones who believe, they will love you. They will see you as the feet. They will see you as the feet of Christ who traveled and brought the word to them. And so by taking the word, you discover friends. And those who receive spiritual blessing from you as you teach them the truth, who do you think they will pray for? One of the glories of proclaiming the gospel to people is that you add to people who are praying for you. And so there's this calling down of blessing as you speak this word of blessing. Verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. If people don't hear, if people don't understand, they're not going to believe. You can't believe something you don't understand. You cannot believe something you don't understand. And so, hearing an intelligible word, understanding it, God uses that and brings out faith. Not every time, but more often than you might think. And when he causes faith, that faith is through the ordinary means of the Word of God. And so the Word of God is what ought to be proclaimed. We should believe the Word of God, and we should proclaim the Word of God. We should confess the Word of God. We should confess the Word in prayer, and we should confess the Word in proclaiming the Gospel. And in proclaiming the Gospel, the effect is it generates faith. Now, earlier on, Paul talked about how you who teach do not teach yourself. It not only generates faith in others, when you teach, it helps to grow your own faith. There's a story about an old minister in the Church of England. He was unconverted. But there were some converted people in the, in the church who could tell. I guess he didn't seem to care all that much about it. And he didn't have fruit that gave evidence. But they were praying for him. And one day he was preaching, and God caused him to believe what he was preaching. And he was converted into preaching, reading the text and communicating the meaning of the text, even though he didn't believe it. But then he did. Now, how much more, as those who actually already believe, if you communicate truth to others, will it reinforce your own faith? and help you to understand it more deeply, and to believe new truths. Verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. So didn't the Jews hear? The sound has gone out to all the earth. This is Psalm 19, verse 4, we already sang. And there are words to the ends of the world. Okay, this is the, the sound of, heaven, of the heavens and the words of the heavens. Now, again, the first part of the psalm, we normally think about it as it relates to general revelation. Because it's talking about the idea of, you think about the sun, the sun moves. And so as you're thinking about moving things, moving things are changing things. Changing things are not eternal. Okay? And so you think about that and you consider the idea of general revelation oftentimes when you're reading the beginning of, Roman, of, of Psalm 19. But the beginning of it is talking about the heavens and the heavens declaring in the multiple ways. So the sound of the heavens has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And so the idea here is, yes, the word of God has gone out to all the earth and to the end of the world. But in addition to that, we know that that was largely through the Jews. The Jews were the ones who received most of the oracles of God. Most of the special revelation that came to anybody, came to the Jews. 
Adam got some, right? There's some people before Noah, Noah himself, right? You, you get up to Abraham, Abraham meets Melchizedek. There seems to be something going on where other people have the word of God out there. But there's this consolidating in. And so, yes, the Jews, Israel, they had the word, they had heard it. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, this is proof texts that are explaining for us. If we go back to the beginning of the chapter, what we will see is we will see this laid out, and these are proof texts for it. It says, verse 2, For I bear them witness, Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they are seeking something else. They're not seeking the righteousness of God. We're told earlier on that they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by works. And so this failure to seek the righteousness of God, even though God calls them to it over and over again, He stretches out His hand. There's this objective preaching and the laying out of the truth and the showing them of these things, they are disobedient and contrary people. And the word contrary is literally contradictory. There, there are people who says things that contradict. And they think things that contradict. They are a people who rather than seeing the word of God and the law of God and seeing how they are breakers of that law. Instead, they try to cover that up and say, no, I'm fine. And so that denial of what the conscience understands, that you're a breaker of the law, is a contradiction in your own thought. And the preaching of the law and then the self-declaration of your own righteousness is contradictory words. And so these people, though they have received the word of God, though they have heard the word of God, they are contradicting it. And they're disobeying it. And that could be forgiven if they would acknowledge that they are breakers of the law. And if they would acknowledge that they need mercy in Christ. And so what is happening is their rejection of Christ is making it so that they will be provoked to jealousy by these nations that are not even really nations. by foolish nations. When the word of God went out of Israel to go to the nations after the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, those nations were deceived. They were enthralled by Satan. They were foolish. And the word of God goes out. And the word of God takes them and makes them wise. And when they are made wise, when they are made into beautiful nations in submission to Christ, when they acknowledge Christ, the result is that the Jews will be made jealous. And so the proclamation of the gospel that's going forth and the discipling of the nations, the baptizing of the nations that's occurring is a process whereby the nations are being made to be a covenant people with God that will bring about a reformation of Israel. So we'll see more about that in chapter 11. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members. And those with floor rights. Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Mother Reese. Um, and uh, in the Psalm 19 and in Romans 10, 14, you're, you're talking about general revelation. Um, because uh, our, we... Uh, here 
have a different understanding and I, I think a different, um, yeah, a, a, we, we have a different conviction about what general revelation is. Could you, maybe, I think it would be helpful if you could give like a brief definition of what we think general revelation is uh, as opposed to. Sure. So some people think that general revelation is the experiencing of the creation. The experience itself is general revelation. Experience is not general revelation. Um, we don't have the knowledge of God by looking at material objects, and there's not a communication of truths coming from our experience of those. General revelation is reason. It is the light that lights the minds of all men coming into the world. Christ causes every man to be a rational creature. That is the nature of man. And so the light that lights the minds of all men is Christ, it is the Word, it is the Logos, and he gives us logic. And when we think logically, we are thinking in the format that God thinks. And so then there's content, and the content that is written on the heart are the categories of the attributes of God. So we have like change and non-change. We have A and non-A. And we interpret things, and those who are idolaters take the categories that you would think about God, like change and non-change, and eternal and temporal, and you apply those attributes to not God. And that is us making conceptual idols. And so we're responsible because we, in unbelief, make conceptual idols. So we are, from our conception, misapplying attributes of God. And so God gives faith, and he causes us to think rightly. There's also categories of the law in our hearts, and so we misapply those and we contradict ourselves and we make choices that we ourselves condemn even if our judgments are wrong and so we all of us are guilty before God because of the fact that we make choices that are contrary to what we even ourselves think are good and those choices can even be just choices about what to think so uh, that is general revelation is the light that lights the minds of all men. And is that what you're asking about, as opposed to experience? Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay. Then anything else? All right. Then let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would build us up in faith you would help us to not be ashamed, but that you would cause us to glory in your truth, to glory in you, to glory that we know and understand you, and that you would cause us to proclaim the word without shame, and that when we fall, when we fail, when we do so ineptly, that you would cause us to get up, to reform, that you would use the suffering of failure to cause us to examine ourselves and to seek to be better. And that you would cause us to meditate on your law day and night. And that you would renew us after the image of Christ so that we can proclaim better. And that you would make it so that we are beautiful in the way that we proclaim. And that you would cause the word to be effective so that others would look upon the preaching of the word as beautiful. And that they would love your church, would join it would work with it and would seek to be those who can be feet who carry the gospel to others. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.